think the only the only announcement that I have that's uh, of any sort of immediacy is that we're providing some uh, food for the Robinson family. Lori Robinson's a lady who is uh, who had the bone marrow transplant is in recovery, and they have seven kids, six kids. They were almost dispensational. Some people don't get that joke. Dispensational, dispensationalists have a tendency, or older dispensationalists have a tendency to create everything in lists of seven. So that's uh, uh, so they're but they're doing well. So we, I, I think it's in three or four weeks that we supply again. There's a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall. You had prayers answered? Gene's making... I know, I know. Well, Gene's been disturbing everything for a long time. We're thankful that he does. Okay. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we uh, will have a few moments of silent prayer. The purpose for that is to give everyone the opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with God, enjoying fellowship with him. When we sin, that fellowship is broken, and we are restored to fellowship when we confess our sins, which simply means to admit or to acknowledge sin to God the Father in silent prayer. And at that instant, we're forgiven of the sins we confess, and then we're cleansed from all unrighteousness. So we recover that uh, walk by the Spirit Paul uh, mandates for us in Galatians 5.16. Okay, we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we have this opportunity to come before you, your throne of grace and prayer, because Jesus Christ opened the way. He is our great high priest. The veil that separated us from you has been rent asunder, and we as church-age believers, members of the body of Christ, have direct access to your throne of grace. Now, Father, we come before you this evening recognizing our need to understand you and understand your word, understand your plan for history. And as we continue this study, we pray that it might give us a greater uh, understanding and perspective of Scripture, how to read and understand Scripture, so that we uh, we can take what is directed to us and apply it to us and understand what is there for implication and application and relate that as well, and that we would be responsive to the challenge of all the principles we see in your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're going to go back a little bit. Uh, this evening, I want to pick up a couple of more things from the Abrahamic Covenant, which we looked at last time. Remember, we have opportunity for Q 
Q&A for questions from anyone in the audience. I'll stop a few times. Sometimes I get carried away, so I've taken the uh, time to, um, you know, it's sort of hard to teach an old dog new tricks every now and then, but I've written it into my notes, questions, so that I'll stop and not just plow through like a machine gun, which is my standard operating procedure. So those who are watching via the live stream have the opportunity. There's a link there on the on the uh, website where you can write in your question, and they will be uh, immediately come into the uh, congregation here, and someone will ask the question for you. Okay, I want to go back a minute to the Abrahamic covenant. Just by way of review, we're we're looking at the biblical covenants. Biblical covenants are distinct from theological covenants. In fact, this last week as I was studying, there's actually a covenant uh, in the Scripture that is uh, an eternal covenant, and it's not on the list. I found a new covenant. So it's kind of fun when something like that happens, and it's interesting how it fits into the scope of, of, uh, of, of Scripture. But the primary biblical covenants, the ones that we usually talk about, uh, are the ones that are in the chart on the on the uh, screen. They're the Gentile covenants. I believe these are the creation covenants. I like that term. The more I use it, the more I've liked it. Instead of Edenic, Edenic and Adamic sound a lot alike, and people can get that confused. But it's the original creation covenant established when God creates man and woman, male and female, in his image in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, and establishes the framework for and the purpose for the human race uh, to rule over creation and to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. And, of course, this is the number one verse in Scripture that the environmentalists hate more than anything else because they believe that the human race is just something part of all of the rest of of the evolutionary uh, mess that just happened by chance as opposed to something that's distinguished and set over the rest of creation as the unique representative of God. The Edenic covenant or the creation covenant had to be modified at the fall when God, when uh, Adam disobeyed and ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that brought sin and spiritual death into the human race. Therefore, there were new conditions and consequences. I've reiterated this many times. There's a penalty, the legislated penalty from God for sin was spiritual death. There are consequences to spiritual death and the corruption that entered into creation. That's what's outlined in Genesis chapter 3. That becomes the foundation for the Adamic covenant. The mandate basically remains the same to fill, fill, multiply and fill the earth and to subdue it. Man doesn't do that. He succumbs to evil, and God brings a worldwide judgment in Genesis 6 through 9, uh, 6 through 8, which is the worldwide Noahic flood. God then reestablishes his covenant with man, uh, with Noah in Genesis chapter 9. That's the Noahic covenant, which is still in effect today. There's failure on the part of the human race, though, because of at the Tower of Babel, there is an attempt to uh, for man to run his destiny according to his own purposes. That's where we really begin to see the uh, the Bible begin to bring in this the the idea of the purpose for history, 
And, and there's going to be a shift that takes place there as God judges the nations by giving them different languages. And this breaks the human race up into different uh, subsets or different tribal groups, which eventually become nations. At that point, God is, Genesis 12, as we saw last time, is juxtaposed to the events of Genesis 11. Genesis 11, the descendants of, uh, of, <coughs> of uh, Ham, basically, through Nimrod, attempted to make a name for themselves. God calls out Abram in Genesis 12 and says, I will make your name great. That's the foundation for the Abrahamic covenant, which is then broken down into three subsequent covenants or rather expanded in three subsequent covenants. The land covenant, a real estate covenant, the promise of a specific piece of real estate, the Davidic covenant, promise of an eternal descendant on the throne of David, and then the new covenant. Uh, we just worked mostly through the Abrahamic covenant already. And then tonight we'll get into the Mosaic covenant. We broke the panorama of human history down into uh, four basic ages, the age of the Gentiles, which will be subdivided into three dispensations, the dispensation of innocence, the dispensation of conscience, and the dispensation of human government, ending at the Tower of Babel. This then is the, is the context for the call of Abram, and this begins a new age, a distinct age. This, we can't really grasp how revolutionary the Abrahamic covenant is. Everything after this is different. All of human history since Genesis 12.1 is determined by Genesis 12.1. God is calling out a unique people, and it is through this unique people that he will bless everyone else. And it's the destiny of those people that is at the centerpiece of human history until uh, it ends with the new destruction of the current heavens and earth and the new heavens and new earth. Then there's the cross, which ends the age of Israel, the beginning of the current church age at the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. This uh, actually ends with the rapture. Then there's a seven-year tribulation, which is the last seven years of the age of Israel that comes at the end of the church age or after the end of the church age. And then we have the millennial uh, kingdom established, uh, the messianic kingdom that lasts for a thousand years. That will conclude with a judgment bringing in the eternity future. Now, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant last time, looked at the key passages in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, went through all the different stipulations and parts of it. And I wanted to come back this time and break down the provisions in terms of three components. There, it's a, there are certain promises that are addressed to Abraham personally. There are certain components that are then addressed to Israel, to his descendant, to the seed personally. And then there are certain promises that are made to the Gentiles as a result of the Abrahamic covenant. So what are the promises that are made to Abraham? God says he's going to be the father of a great nation. Uh, He's going to be the father of many kings will come forth from him, as we'll see later. But the great nation that's mentioned is Israel is the Jewish people. Uh, Second, he himself will possess the land. There's a promise that God says, I will give this land to you. The problem with that is that Abraham never possessed the land. In fact, he only purchased one small piece of real estate located down near uh, Hebron, which is the cave of Machpelah, where he buried Sarah and where he is buried. Isaac, Jacob, and their wives are also buried there as well. Uh, 
God promised that other nations will come from him. These would be the, the, the Arab peoples that are descendants from Ishmael via his, uh, his uh, relationship with Hagar, and then through Esau, his, his grandson, the twin of Isaac. The, what makes Jewish people Jewish is not that they're descendants from Abraham or Abraham and Isaac, but that they're descendants of the line through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what distinguishes them from all of the other descendants of Abraham. God promises the kings will arise from him. Kings through the various other nations that are descendants uh, through him. You have the descendants through his uh, nephew Lot, the Midianites. You also have the um, Moabites, and you have, the, of course, the Arab nations. God promised Abraham certain personal blessings and that he himself was to be. It's a mandate. He was to be a blessing to those around him. And then God promised him that his name would be great among men. It's not because Abraham was great or promoted himself, but because God promoted him. No one is really promoted unless God promotes you. The next category is a promises to the seed Israel. And for Israel, he promised that uh, the nation would be great and distinct above all nations. And I could take the time, but I won't. Most of you have seen lists like this in emails. That the, the, the vast number of awards and accomplishments by the Jewish people, the number of, of uh, Nobel Prizes, the uh, actors, actresses, musicians, I mean, they excel above all other people. For a small group of people that consists of no more than about 14 million people, they, they have the lion's share by percentage of, of the awards and the accomplishments uh, in the human race. Uh, they're destined to be innumerable, not that God can't number them, but that it is a uh, statement of hyperbole that their number would be like the stars in the sky or the sands on the seashore. And that God promised that they would possess the land that God had given to them. To understand that, we have to understand it in, in terms of a literal sense. When God gave the boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates and to the uh, Great Sea, which is the Mediterranean, this would incorporate all the land today that makes up modern Israel as well as Jordan, uh, elements of Syria, probably Saudi Arabia, and uh, and parts of the Sinai Peninsula. All of this is part of the land that God promised Israel as an everlasting possession. And that word everlasting is so important because this is an everlasting covenant. And and the seed, the Israel are promised ultimate victory over their enemies. This has not happened yet in history. Just as the promise to Abraham that he would possess the land has not happened yet in history, so too the, the, the ultimate blessing, the ultimate uh, glorification of Israel, their possession of the land has not yet happened in history and their victory over their enemies. So that is yet to be fulfilled. This is in the future. And then the third area is God's promise to the Gentiles that God would bless them if they blessed Israel and God would judge them if they treated Israel lightly or with disrespect. And then third, that there would be spiritual blessings for the Gentiles through the seed of Abraham, as stated in Galatians 3, 8 through 9. The Apostle Paul applies the singular word seed to... um, to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The word seed actually in Hebrew can be plural or singular, and so at times the context indicates it has a plural sense or a corporate sense, and at other times it has a singular sense. And Paul took it that way to make his application in relation to Christ in Galatians 3, 8 through 9. So that summarizes the provisions of the, of the covenant. Now, another thing that's important to realize here is that whenever God makes promises in the Scripture, he makes them to either a person or a group of people. He made certain promises to Abraham. We can't go back and read those promises given to Abraham and then claim them as, a, as if God is bound by that promise for us because that's reading somebody else's mail. That's looking at somebody else's contract. Uh, God didn't promise that to us. He promised that to, to Abraham or to the Jewish people. So we always have to be careful. Now, there are some principles that can be extrapolated at times. Often a promise that is made to Israel is merely a, 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 a manifestation of a broader principle or broader reality within the plan of God. But it's always part one of the challenges in interpretation to determine what is, uh, what is a, a, a promise that is historically conditioned to a people or to a person and those that have a universal application. And as I've said in the past, the Abrahamic covenant is made up of three components, a promise for the land, a promise of blessing in the seed, and a promise of worldwide blessing. Now, one of the ways in which the Abrahamic covenant is used, or before I get to that, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed many times in the remainder of Genesis as well as in the rest of the Old Testament. God confirmed the covenant with Isaac in Genesis 26, verses 2 through 5 and verse 24, that he would make the same covenant with um, with Isaac that he made with Abraham. In Genesis 26, 3, he told Isaac to sojourn or travel in the land, and I will be with you and bless you, for to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It's a complete reconfirmation and reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant to his son Isaac. So God promises blessing to Isaac and to Isaac's seed. But these promises are not merely to Isaac's seed, but just like with Abraham, they're promises made to Isaac himself that God would bless him. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, and God chose Jacob. That doesn't mean that Jacob was saved and Esau wasn't. The, the selection wasn't for eternal destiny in heaven. The selection was for the plan of God on the earth. And so this is not an example of, uh, of the doctrine of soteriological election, which is how many people uh, misread the passage. It is an example of God selecting different groups, different people for certain destinies in history, and he did that with, with Jacob. And he reiterated the promise to Jacob in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, where God said to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants, to your seed. That's that same word. We have words like that that have a, 
uh, a corporate sense. They, they may be singular in function. They may be used singular or they may be used as a plural. Uh, the word, the noun deer can be singular or plural. We have the same kind of thing in English. So the word seed is the same way. And here it has the idea of descendants, plural. Genesis 28:14. your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants. Notice, in you, in Isaac, they will be blessed, and in your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then God said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. So with those words, Esau was excluded from the covenant line, and the covenant is confirmed only with uh, with Jacob. Now, neither Abraham nor Isaac uh, owned land. Uh, they just had the cave of Machpelah. Now, this is important because of what happens at an interchange with Jesus later on in the Gospels, and it has to do with the doctrine of resurrection. Jesus got into a conversation and de- debate uh, with the Pharisees and, and Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees did not believe in... I mean, the Pharisees did believe in resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. So the Sadducees came to Jesus... One day, Matthew twenty two twenty three. on that day some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Now they're going to come up with a hypothetical question. It's always a problem. I don't like when people say, well, just hypothetically speaking, because those kinds of things usually don't happen in reality. They just happen hypothetically. But they come up and they say, Okay, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is next of kin shall marry his wife. This was known as leveret marriage in order to preserve the inheritance within the family or within the clan. Uh, his brother is next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now, there's seven brothers with us. The first marries and dies. And having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. So here's the story. This woman marries one brother and he dies. And then she marries the other brother and it's long, long before he dies. And then she marries a third brother and it's not long before he dies. And when they get through with this, all seven have died m- mysteriously. And last of all, the woman dies. And their question is, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven shall she be? Seems to me the question would be, are they convening a grand jury yet? So the question they ask, notice the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. They're asking the question. They say, whose wife of the seven shall she be? But Jesus answered. He's so sophisticated. He doesn't answer their question. He says, you are mistaken. He just challenged him. He says, you guys don't even believe in resurrection. How can you be even asking this question? You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The issue here is, you know, this passage is often taken to say, well, those sons of God mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 that uh, cohabited with the daughters of men, that can't really be angels because this passage says angels can't have sex and they can't take on human bodies and have sexual relations. Is that what that passage says? No, that passage says that they, they don't marry. 
There's not an institution of marriage in heaven. Now, that implies that there's not a, a sexual procreation among the angels, and I would agree with that, but that doesn't mean that angels who have material bodies, I mean immaterial bodies, don't have the ability to transform themselves into uh, creatures with material bodies that emulate the material function or the functions of the human body materially. When the two angels that accompanied the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ to Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, chapter 17, they they were tired, they rested, they ate, they drank, they slept, all of those things. Uh, they their human bodies they were they transformed themselves into human bodies that had corporeal bodily functions for all practical purposes. So that would not be an argument against. Uh, that, that's what I call a rational argument that has no foundation in the text that is used to try to debunk the text that has firm lexical, theological, and exegetical basis in at least three different books of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, uh, 1, Peter chapter, or second, uh, yeah, 1 Peter chapter 3, and Jude as well. So Jesus is not making a, an overall statement about the uh, fact of some other situation. He's just saying uh, there's not marriage in heaven, and so it doesn't really matter what the circumstances were on the earth. But then he says, regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He's emphasizing the present tense of the verb. Sometimes you wonder why I emphasize uh, verb tense or grammatical minutia in the text. Well, we get this from the Scripture. There are several times Jesus built his whole argument just on a tense of the verb. Paul built his argument, one we just mentioned in Genesis chapter 3, when he said when the Abrahamic covenant refers to seed, it's a singular, not plural, and that referred to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was building his whole argument on an exegetical point that the noun was a singular and not a plural in the verse from which he quoted it. So... The Lord is doing the same thing here. He says, God said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He said that when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were already dead and in the ground. So if there's no resurrection, then God would have said, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By putting it in the present tense, the Lord is indicating that they are still uh, alive in their intermediate uh, existence, and he is c- currently the God of the living. That's his point at the end of the verse. Jesus said, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So he just flipped the argument back on them com- completely. So the point there is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob never never realized the fulfillment of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant during their lifetime. So that implies there must be a resurrection in the future during which God will fulfill his promise to them and the Abrahamic covenant will come to uh, complete fulfillment and at some future time. So as we wrapped up, I pointed out aspects of the status that it's a permanent unconditional covenant. It's still in effect. Now, as we'll see in this 
uh, list in terms of the last point is that the sign of the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is circumcision. Circumcision, therefore, is still mandatory if you're Jewish because the covenant with Abraham is still in effect. The the, uh, uh, circumcision is not for salvation. The problem that you have in Galatians with the Judaizers was that they were taking circumcision from the Mosaic law and making it mandatory as a, uh, for, for salvation or for sanctification. But what um, the Abrahamic covenant does is it makes it a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which is eternal and everlasting. And so if you're Jewish, there's still that mandate. Even if you become a believer and you're in the church age, you're still racially and ethnically Jewish and a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, that uh, covenant, it, because that is still in effect, would still apply to a uh, church-age believer who is ethnically Jewish. Just because you become a believer doesn't mean you're no longer ethnically Jewish. It just means your Jewish status doesn't have something to do with your relationship to God. Galatians chapter 3, where we talk about the, that where we have the verse that says that in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or slave. Let's take something a little more obvious. You're a man. You trust in Christ as your Savior. Are you still a male? Yeah, you're still a male. But it's not an issue in terms of your relationship with God. In the Old Testament, if you were a male, it was significant because you could have uh, closer access to God in the temple. If you were a woman, you couldn't. You couldn't get as close to God as a man could. If you were not Jewish, you could not come into the temple. Uh, but uh, So that kept you from being close to the temple. So being Jewish in the Old Testament meant that if you were a Jewish male and you were free, you could have access as close as you could get to God without going into the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go. So... Um, the point that I'm making is that we, we, I think we've often misunderstood passages like, like this. Just because your Jewishness doesn't impact uh, your relationship with God and your spiritual status doesn't mean it's still not significant in relation to the Abrahamic covenant. That's why Paul had Timothy circumcised, as we studied in our study in, in Acts. Second, the New Testament does not change the unconditional nature of this covenant, which is uh, clearly stated in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. That's Paul's argument there, that the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. Third, Paul's argument is that whatever the purpose of the Mosaic covenant, it could not nullify or set aside the previous unconditional covenant. Now, that's important. In Galatians three, he's saying because the the, the, the uh, excuse me the Mosaic covenant was of a temporary nature, it was of a lesser quality. It could not supersede or replace a previous covenant. Now, I'll come back to that in a minute, but we're talking about the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional cannot be replaced by a temporary covenant. Now, this last week, I got a question uh, that came to me. And Bryce, you can get ready if there are any questions. Uh, and if you've got one, we'll pause in a minute for questions. And I was asked the following question from somebody who was reading in Genesis chapter 8. And they read verse 13. This is a problem that, happen, that happens if you don't contextualize what you're reading in the Scripture, don't understand it in terms of its surrounding verses. Verse 13 of 
Hebrews 8 says, in that he says, that is God speaking to Jeremiah in the passage just quoted, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 13, in that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, the way this person read that, when they read he, he has made the first obsolete, he thought the first covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. And see, that's easy to do, and it's understandable if you haven't worked your way through the context of chapter 7 and chapter 8, where the writer of Hebrews is only dealing with two covenants, the <coughs> the uh, temporary Mosaic covenant, and then its replacement, the new covenant. And that becomes clear because in chapter 7 he's talking about how the priesthood of Aaron, which is established by the Mosaic covenant, is inferior to the um, to the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is which allows the Lord Jesus Christ to establish a superior covenant, which is the new covenant, which is the topic in Hebrews chapter eight. So, just a point that that a temporary covenant does not uh, nullify the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. Uh, fourth, we see the emphasis on the word seed, that it's an everlasting seed. And fifth, that this covenant begins the dispensation of patriarchs or promise, which is what I looked at the last time. Okay, any questions? No, no questions? No comments? Everything clear? All right. No questions? Good. Okay. Just a quick review. I went through this last time, but I want to just hit it again. The scripture for the dispensation of the patriarchs, new administration, new revelation, all the, all the features are here. Genesis 12.1 gives the new revelation, and this extends to Exodus 18.27 before God gives the law. The central person is Abraham. God makes the covenant with Abraham. God binds himself alone. The name, two names are used by dispensationalist patriarchs which recognizes the role of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the uh, dispensation of promise, which emphasizes the promise made to Abraham. There's a responsibility given. Now, this is important. I'm going to really emphasize this when we hit this, this dispensation and the next one, is that what distinguishes them is going to be new revelation, which is what's given in um, the Abrahamic covenant, it outline, the new revelation will define a new responsibility. And here the responsibility is to the Abrahamic covenant to keep the seed isolated, to separate from the surrounding pagan cultures, and then that will lead to a test to see if they will do that and remain separate from the Canaanites. There's a failure, which is their intermarriage with the Canaanites and assimilation with the culture around them. And this leads to a divine judgment where Jacob and his sons are removed from the land. The land is a picture of the place. It, it is literally the place of blessing. God takes them out, says, you know, you're really disobedient. You're just messing up by the numbers. I'm taking you out so for your own benefit to protect you where you're going to grow in a different environment. And then I can bring you back where there'll be an opportunity to grow and, and mature because your numbers will be great. But even in that, we see God's grace in the midst of judgment. He preserves the nation ethnically and spiritually, 
and they prosper even in the midst of slavery. Key application for us. Sometimes God's going to put us in really bad situations, but God knows what he's doing, and we may not understand it. It's a Romans 8.28 issue that all things work together for good uh, because we're in God's plan because uh, God loves us, and he's working things together for good. That doesn't mean all things are good. Being a slave was not a good thing. But God used it towards his ultimate purpose to build, uh, a, to build the Jewish nation and to prepare them to serve him in the land. Okay, then we come to the Mosaic Covenant. All of that ends that first dispensation of the age of Israel. We come to the uh, Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant, any one of these covenants, is new revelation. What's one of the key elements that we know indicates that we're moving into a new period of God's administration of history? There's new revelation. There's new information given. God is going to uh, modify the way in which he's administering uh, human history and administering his people. So this is a, the Abrahamic covenant. And in a broad sense, it's covered in Exodus 20, verse 1, with the giving of the Ten Commandments, which are basically the prelude to the Mosaic Law, and extends through, the, through De, uh, Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-eight. Deuteronomy uh, thirty deals with, or twenty-nine rather, deals with the um, uh, land covenant. But the covenant proper is really the law itself, the mandates in Exodus twenty verse forty. There are additional ones in Leviticus, of course, with the with the offerings and the laws related to the priesthood other ceremonial laws listed there. The persons that are involved are God as party of the first part and Israel as party of the second part. God is entering into this contract uh, with um, with Israel. Now, I want to change this just a minute because I have another passage I want to put up here. I want to show you, have you see two passages. You should underline these in your Bible because these are just... Uh, absolutely central to understanding God's plan and purposes uh, for Israel. And that's important for understanding things that are said later on in the Bible. As we've gone through our study in the Sermon on the Mount, I've taken a view of the Sermon on the Mount that is not a, a majority view at all. I don't know that there is a majority view. There's a lot of views. But I've worked my way through it. I've had a lot of stimulating discussion with uh, different pastors and different individuals. One of the things that we have to understand is that that Jesus in the Mosaic Law, as I've been teaching, I mean in the Sermon on the Mount, is giving the divine interpretation of the, of the Mosaic Law and righteousness, the kind of righteousness that God expects from those who are going to be obedient to the Mosaic Law. Now, is that righteousness that is expected from the Mosaic law, an imputed righteousness which would relate to their justification, or is it an experiential righteousness? Now, one of the important things to understand is that when God calls out Israel and redeems them from from Egypt, that is that redemption at the Exodus event is analogous to salvation. Does, does God redeem them before or after he gives them the law? He redeems them before he gives them the law. He gives the law to a redeemed people, which means it's not about how to get redeemed. It's how redeemed people live. The whole purpose of the law then is not related to imputed righteousness, 
but it's related to experiential righteousness, how the people in Israel should live. If they're obedient, God promises blessings to them. In Deuteronomy 28 and in Leviticus, first part of Leviticus chapter 26, if they're not obedient, if they're unrighteous, then God promises cursing and judgment. We'll look at that as, as we go through the age, age of Israel. So uh, when God is calling out Moses to go to Pharaoh, he says in Exodus 4.22, Then you, that's Moses, shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So is God looking at Israel corporately as a nation as saved or unsaved? He looks at them as, as saved in, in this passage. Now, the other verse I want us to go to is found in Exodus chapter 19, just before God gives them the uh, Torah. Uh, Moses goes up to God on Mount Sinai. They've had the Exodus event. They're crossed the Red Sea. They've gone down into the Sinai Peninsula and gone to Mount Sinai. And Moses went up to God. God began to speak to them, and the people went, Whoa, we don't want to hear God. We can't stand his voice. He blew out all the microphones we have on our MP3 recorders, and we really can't get this down. So Moses, go up there and transcribe it. So Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him called to him from the mountain and says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. That's their redemption. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Is he talking about justification or, or sanctification? There. Is he talking about the redemption of Israel, or is he talking about how the redeemed people should live in order to realize the blessing of God? He's talking about how redeemed people should live. He says, um, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's a result of living in obedience. If they don't live in obedience, then God's going to uh, put them under judgment. So the issue here isn't how to get saved or justified, but how a saved people a saved people live. Okay, let's go back to the Mosaic Law here. Okay, first of all, the scriptures Exodus twenty uh, to forty primarily the persons are God and Israel, and then there let's talk a little bit about the provisions. There are actually six hundred thirteen specific commandments. One of the reasons that in the second temple period, possibly first temple period, that they used, uh, they used a pomegranate as a decorative item on the robes of the high priest was, I just learned this. I just love little stuff like this. There are 613 seeds in a pomegranate. So they selected that as a, as a symbolic reminder of the law. So there's 613 specific commandments in the law. There was blessing for obeying it, cursing for disobeying it, and there's a substitutionary, there are substitutionary blood sacrifices for many sins, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 17.11. For other sins, there was no sacrifice but capital punishment instead. And then the token of this covenant is the Shabbat, Sabbath, not circumcision. That's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The sign of the Mosaic covenant is Shabbat. Somebody recently asked me this question. 
why, where did this go that we don't worship on Sabbath anymore? And the reason is, is because of, of the Ten Commandments, the only one that is not reiterated in the New Testament is the commandment to rest on the seventh day. After the resurrection of Christ, the early Christians met on Sunday. Now, when did they meet on Sunday? They probably met at night. How many people got Sunday off in the Roman Empire? None. And in fact, this was a real problem for the Jews when they went out in captivity because here you get the Jewish people who are doing two really weird things. One is circumcision. And they, that is a big, they, that's talked about a lot in the ancient world. They were really weird because they got circumcised. But then they didn't want to work one day a week. That was unheard of in the ancient world. They want to take Saturday off. Who are these people? And they're going to do what? They're going to go worship God. Nobody else did that. So these things really distinguished them and made them unique. That's related to being being a holy people. So the Mosaic Law is signified by the Sabbath. In the church, they met. There's no mandate to meet on the first day. It's what they did. And usually in the evening is or early in the morning. Alan? Uh, they did rest on Saturday, right? And yet the very the early Christians were Jewish, right? So they were switching from Saturday to Sunday in their worship. Yeah, they would meet on Sunday morning. Uh, I think very early in Acts they would meet early in the morning. They still had to work. You know, if you're in Israel and you're Jewish, you, 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 they were still following a lot of the law because that was their ethnic, ethnicity, their history, their tradition, their background. They weren't doing it for spiritual reasons. They did it because that was the law. And then so they would only meet on Sunday morning or on Sunday night before work or after work. But that's when they would meet. And in the early, early church, probably in those first chapters of, of Acts, they would meet early in the morning. I'm really glad we don't do that anymore, even though I'm a morning person. You'll, you'll notice I've never had a sunrise service. Even in my first church when they really pressured me to, I said, I'm not getting up at 4.30 in the morning to, to preach a sermon to sleepy people. It's, you know, 5.30 a.m. Never done that. What else? Still, they were still resting on Saturday, but then they were going to, to, uh, going to work on Sunday. On yeah. Sunday. Yeah, they didn't have a five-day work week like we did. Why do we have a five-day work week? Or, or why do we have a six-day work week and have, have Sunday off? It's because of that Judeo-Christian heritage. The idea of not working every day is a sign of that. Now, one of the uh, great points about the sabbatical law is that if you were to work six days, what is, what is Exodus 20, what is that, Exodus 27? I think it's verse 7, 7 or 8. What does that say? For God says, for I, just as I created, worked for six days and rested on the seventh, so you work for six days. And, and you work, it was a mandate. There are like three mandates or four commands in the Sabbath command. And they're mandated to work six days a week. Many people miss that. They just think they're being mandated to rest on Saturday. But they're mandated to work six days a week and to rest on the seventh, just as God did. So the question is, if those days, which are patterned after the days of creation... If the days of creation weren't literal 24-hour days as we know them, 
then why can't you be justified and say, well, you know, those days were just literary figures. That's real popular teaching today, that that's just a literary structure in Genesis 1. That, that Genesis 1 is not to be understood as literal six 24-hour uh, consecutive days. This is just a literary framework. But once again, you get over into Genesis chapter 20 and the mandate on the Sabbath. If it's anything other than a literary framework, then any Jew can come along and say, I can make a lot more money if I don't have to take Saturday off. I'm just going to work 24-7 because I don't have to stop. Because God didn't stop for 1,000 years or 2,000 or 10,000 or 100,000. Those days were just ages. So I don't have to stop work till the 700,000th year. And then I'll take 100,000. Well, I won't live that long, so I can work my whole life. See, it opens the door to, to, to a destru- actually a destruction of the language of that command. It's meaningless unless the prototype is a literal 24-hour, six-consecutive-day creation week. Okay, so I don't know why I keep going back to this same basic slide. Um, maybe, I, maybe I repeated it. I, I covered it all? I did. Okay, purpose. In relation to Israel, the purpose of the Mosaic Law was to... Um, the purpose for the Mosaic Law was to distinguish Israel from all the people around them. This is the first point. According to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 42 to 44, the dietary laws were not given to make them healthy. You will read that in books like The Maker's Diet. Now, health had nothing to do with this. Are there healthy benefits? Possibly. But that didn't have anything to do with it. And why do I say that? Because in Acts chapter 10, when God lowers the big tablecloth with the big banquet of trafe food, unclean food for, for Peter, and he said, eat, there was nothing had changed other than the dispensation. Peter had not been instructed on how to cook it better. You know, the shrimp, the lobster, all the other scavenger food that was on that tablecloth was still just as much a perhaps a dietary problem as it was before. But God declared it was all clean at that point. So clean and unclean have nothing to do with diet. Always be careful of that because I've read this in so many books. Somebody always wants to know, we're going to live longer and healthier if we eat what Jesus ate. Well, you can't get that out of the Bible without distorting the text. Now... Scripture says that there were, the law had purposes in relation to the Gentiles. Ephesians 2.11 states that the law was a wall of partition that kept the Gentiles away. It separated them. You know, we live in a world where we want to include everybody. But God, God's mandates and God's word often and more often than not excludes people. And the purpose for the law was to keep the Gentiles away from the covenants and away from the privileges and blessing of the covenants, according to Ephesians 2.11. The only way a Gentile could enter into those privileges was if he took on the obligations of the law for himself and become a pros- became a proselyte to, to Judaism. In relation to sin, according to Romans 7.7-8.4, 7 
the law was to show what sin is. It was to give evidence of what sin is and how pervasive sin is. In Romans 7, 7 following, through the law, Paul says, comes the knowledge of sin. Second, it was to cause us to sin more. You just tell some kid not to do something, the first thing he does, he wants to do is to do what he's told not to do. So by giving somebody seven, 613 commandments, things not to do, then uh, people just want to do it even more. So it aggravated uh, sin. Third, in relation to sin, the law was to show that man can do nothing on his own to please God. That man really can't fulfill the law 100%. He can fulfill parts of it, but not all of it. Parts of it, all the time, all of it, some of the time. But you got to do it all, all the time, or you haven't obeyed it. So, and last, in relation to sin, it leads us to the Messiah, recognizing that the law cannot be a basis for for salvation. So, in terms of its status, the law is no longer in effect, according to Romans 10.4, Galatians 3.15-19, Galatians 3.23-4.7, Hebrews 7.11-12 and 18, Ephesians 2.11-15, 2 Corinthians 3.3-11. 3 I'll go through those one more time for those who are listening. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. Galatians 3.15 to 19 and 23 to 4.7. So just basically that whole section from the middle of Galatians 3 to 4.7. Hebrews 7, 11 and 12 and 18 Ephesians 2, 11 through 15, that's that section immediately following the gospel, famous gospel passage, which is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Go to 11 through 15, and 2 Corinthians 3, 3 through, uh, 3 through 11. I keep getting a repetition of the same slide. Okay, where are we? Okay, the test in the Mosaic Law is to obey the whole law and to accept Messiah as the prophet redeemer, the seed of the woman. According to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, that's a passage is talking about the, the prophet that will come that is greater than Moses. That's clearly a messianic prophecy. So they were to do the whole law and they were to accept uh, the, the Messiah as the prophet redeemer who would deliver them from their sins. But they failed. They failed to keep the law according to Romans 10, 1 through 3. They failed to obey the prophets according to 2 Chronicles 36, 14 to 16 and Jeremiah 25, 4. They failed to obey the prophets. They failed to accept the Messiah when he came, John 1, 11. His people did not receive him. As a result, there are judgments. We'll look at the details of this in just a minute. There are five cycles or stages of judgment that God warned them they would go through if they were disobedient. But there's still grace. In every dispensation, there's judgment and there's grace. In grace, God gave the sacrificial system for the restitution of the sinner. The primary purpose of the sacrifices was not salvation, 
but so that the saved person could be restored to fellowship and could worship the God of the covenant, the God who inhabited the uh, the temple or the tabernacle. Uh, the Day of Atonement was given for the whole nation in Leviticus 23, 26 to 32. There were individual sacrifices given for the people. Leviticus 1 through 5. And then second, the Messiah finally comes to Israel despite their sinfulness. Despite their sinfulness. Now, I want to add a section. I haven't taught through this before, except not quite in as much detail as this as this, that Israel is viewed as a redeemed people. I think a lot of people have had trouble with this. We've dealt with this in many, many different ways. We've dealt with it in Revelation. We dealt with it in Hebrews. We've dealt with this in, um, uh, we're dealing with it in Matthew to some degree, that Scripture views Israel corporately as well as individually, as a collective whole, as a nation, as well as individual people. So corporately, they're viewed as a redeemed people. We also dealt with this a lot in Romans 9 to 11, because Romans 9 to 11 is primarily dealing with Israel corporately and not individually. In Exodus 4.31, notice that you have 4.31 and 14.31. So you can remember those because the only difference is those 10 chapters later. Same basic 4.31 in both of them. 4.31, after God told, sent Moses to the people, and Moses announces his mission to the people. What's their response? The people believed. Amen. When we say amen, amen. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. They believed and then they worshipped. This is the response of a saved people. Not one Jew died when the when God brought death to the firstborn in in Egypt. They all believed about the Passover lamb and applied the blood. They were all saved. Well, I can't say they were all saved, but almost all of them. Because you might have a household of 15 people who have the blood applied outside, and there may be somebody inside who's there against their will. But generally speaking, they were all all believers. Then in Exodus 14.31 we read, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. The use of the word believed is significant throughout Exodus. First of all, it's the hithil form of the verb amen or aman. The hithil form is the causative form and it has the sense of, of believe, and as the uh, theological word book of the Old Testament states, it expresses genuine faith throughout the Old Testament. This is one of the key words to express faith. Secondly, there are six occurrences of the word believe, the hifil of Ammon, in Exodus chapter 4, in verse 1, in five, verse 5, verse 8 twice, in verse 9, verse 31. Some of them are they did not believe, and then they believed, so there's a contrast there. But it all marks the faith of the people as a central theme of the chapter. They believed what God told them uh, and what, what Moses told them God said. Third observation is that the genuineness of their faith 
is marked not only by their initial worship, but also by their obedience in observing the Passover. They worshiped in Exodus chapter 4, but it's after that, it's the 10th plague later on, where they, um, uh, that comes later. So they initially believed, they worshiped, and then later they observed the Passover. They're, 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 they have believed God just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Fourth thing is that the Lord promised them salvation from the Egyptians. Now, it could be argued by someone that the salvation that God promised was just physical deliverance, but if you look at the rest of the context, it's more than that. Other words are used. Their response to the deliverance is, again, that they believed, but here it is added that they believed in the Lord. So it's not just physical deliverance. They're believing in Yahweh, which indicates an entrance in of, of and relationship of trust with the Lord. So they are viewed as saved. Fifth, we have the Song of Moses, which Miriam sings in Exodus chapter 15, reciting the deliverance by God, which again is, uses the same word salvation. It refers to their salvation, their being redeemed, and their being purchased. All these are terms that are richly related to the concept of salvation. Other Old Testament passages confirm that though they had sinned, God redeemed and forgave them. Passages in Nehemiah 9.17, Psalm 78.38 and 42, Psalm 99.8, Psalm 106.8 and 10, and Isaiah 63, verse 9. And then after they are delivered, redeemed, from Egypt, then God gives them the Mosaic Covenant. This illustrates that their redeemed status. And then finally, or no, not, not finally, I have one more point after this. Their redeemed status is affirmed in Hebrews eleven twenty nine and 39. And then finally, that's Hebrews eleven twenty nine and 39. And then last, in the conclusion, the law was given to define how a redeemed people were to live. It describes the experiential righteousness needed to remain in the land with God's blessing. Otherwise, they would be removed. So, this brings us to the dispensation of the law. The scripture is Exodus 19.1 through Acts 1.26. Through 1.26. The reason we do that is because that's when the church begins. Now, what are we going to do with the life of Christ? Well, we'll find that out when we get there, because I'll explain that when we get there. Nobody outside of Israel knew what was going on with Jesus. So it's one of those interesting little hinge-type dispensations that lasts for three years or a little over three years. Something different is happening in Israel, but if you're living in Turkey, if you're living in Italy, if you're living in, in Tarshish, if you're living in Babylon or in India and you're Jewish, you don't have a clue what's going on with Jesus of Nazareth in Israel. So everything continues the same for you. But if you were living in Judea or Galilee, it was different. There was a new message. There's a new test. There's, there's new revelation. There's new responsibilities. And there's a distinct failure. The test during the age of the law was to do the whole law to accept Messiah as the prophet. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. And the failure is that they failed to keep the law they failed to obey the prophets, and they failed to accept the Messiah. 
All of that's a dispensation of the law. Then we get to the five judgments. I've already gone through this. I don't know how I got all these duplicated slides in here. Okay, we'll get past that. Five cycles of discipline. First cycle of discipline. These are all described in in Leviticus 26, 14 to 46, and Deuteronomy 28. The first cycle of discipline described in Leviticus 26, 14 through 17 says that if they're disobedient, God would bring terror or fear upon them. They're going to have anxiety attacks. He's going to bring disease upon them. It's not related to anything you can put in a laboratory and measure. You can't measure the cause and effect relationship between their failure spiritually and what happens medically. But God says there's a relation there. That's because there's something above the the physical laws that's controlling things. And they're going to have stolen crops, which is equivalent to uh, a a failure of their economy. They're going to lose the value of their money, and they'll start being defeated by their enemies. In the second cycle of discipline, their pride of power is broken. Their economy is destroyed. There'll be a drought. In an agricultural environment, this is a real tragedy. Just think about all these people that are living out in West Texas. There are 45 communities. No, there I don't know how many. There are a number of communities in Texas right now. I was reading this article yesterday. that are within 45 days of running out of water. There are a number of other communities in Texas that are within 90 days of running out of water. Southern California is having a horrible, horrible drought. Now, we've had droughts before. When did we have a drought before the Dust Bowl? What happened right before the Dust Bowl? The Roaring Twenties. Great apostasy from liberalism in that time. This this isn't the same. It's similar. The 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 law the 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 five cycles of discipline are for Israel, but there are similar patterns because God is not going to allow unjust people to disobey Him uh, in a, a flagrant manner. So there are going to be similarities. But for Israel, this is a second stage. There will be drought. The heavens will be like iron, the earth like, like bronze. And this means that it's going, it's going to be impossible to plant because the ground's so hard. And then they'll have a bad harvest and they'll work hard but have no results. We get to the third cycle. There will be plagues. So there's an increase in disease. You had the disease in, in, in the first stage, and now it's going to be increased. Something painful uh, is going to take place. Uh, and then there's going to be an increase of violence from wild beasts. Uh, the curse is going to be intensified. I, I find it so interesting that in the blessing sections, God said, I'll take all the wild beasts out of the land. I'll remove them. But if you're disobedient, I'll bring them back. So what do we do in our worship of, of nature? We reintroduce the violent species back in, the, the, the uh, wolves and bears and mountain lions and and all of those kinds of things out of our own out of our own arrogance. It's nothing more than a than idolatry. Fourth cycle of discipline: the sword will come, which means death, violent death. Uh, God will bring uh, military invasion into the land. Uh, they'll fly for refuge. They'll gather together in their cities. They'll leave their homes. They'll leave their farms. They'll seek shelter from the invaders. There'll be pestilence. Disease intensifies and spreads. And there's massive death from all these people gathering together in the cities and the loss of sanitation. And then there'll be food rationing. Uh, ten women with one oven means uh, that that there's there's not going to be sufficient fuel 
in order to cook food. Um, they'll deliver bread by weight, and that also indicates food, food rationing. Then we come to the fifth cycle of discipline. There'll be cannibalism. This took place, I just read this the other day in Josephus, that there was a case as the armies of, uh, of Titus were on the verge of breaking through the walls uh, of Jerusalem in AD 70. There was a, the, Josephus tells the story of a mother who killed her baby and cooked it, cut the baby in half, stored half of it for the next day. Well, some pe- there was a smell, and some uh, scavengers came banging on the door and wanting her food because they could smell that something was cooked. And she uh, said that she would share with them, and they were just uh, repulsed by it. Word of this spread through the city. It's right out of Leviticus 26. It was a great testimony. This was God's judgment. And it revolted Titus and the Romans. They, they wanted to, it was said that they wanted to destroy Jerusalem so they would put an end to this kind of misery among the people. Even the pagans couldn't believe that they were killing their young in order to survive. Um, God promised there would be a, a destruction of the religions which were an abomination to God. The idolatry would be destroyed. Uh, cities would be destroyed. Places of worship would be destroyed. The sanctuaries, the temple, an utter desolation of the land and the people would be driven out of the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would be dispersed among the nations. This is a fifth cycle of discipline. It happened in 722 with the Assyrian invasion. It happened in 586 with the Chaldean invasion. And it happened in 87 with the Roman invasion. Not since, probably not since 722, have there been as many, uh, as high a percentage of Jews, worldwide Jews, living in the land of Israel as we have today. That has prophetic significance. I'm not saying it fulfills prophecy, but it has prophetic significance. This is unique. It's never happened. You didn't have a return like that under Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, Ezra, none of that. It's unique. Any questions before I close? Anything come in? Nothing? Okay. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at this this evening, to be uh, uh, just reflect upon the law and its purpose and how you fulfilled your promises, both in terms of blessing when Israel was obedient, but especially in terms of judgment as outlined in Leviticus chapter 26 and how, how horrible and how awful this was. Our Father, we recognize that all this was to teach us something and to instruct us and to prepare us for the coming of Messiah, and that as we look back in history, we see how you worked all of this together to bring about that proper time, the fullness of times, as Galatians 4.4 4 says, of the arrival of, of the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. And, Father, we pray that we might be uh, challenged to, in our understanding of your word to go back and rethink how we understand the law in terms of its significance, its purpose, its audience, the ones to whom it was given, Israel, and how that worked itself out. We can't understand the rest of the Old Testament and much of the New if we don't understand the law correctly. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.